Welcome to the Seventh Report. Your host here, Harrison Hunter. You struggling to find that perfect Valentine's Day gift for the special someone who seems to have everything that they want? Avoid that stress and head to www.tnbrookery.wixsite.com site to make your gift even sweeter. The brookery offers seven unique flavors of soft, rich croissants that make your Valentine's Day gift a unique treat. Place your order at www.tnbrookery.wixsite.com site for more information. Check out the brookery on Facebook and Instagram for additional chances to win free croissants. Again, that website is www.tnbrookery.wixsite.com site. Give a tasteful gift this Valentine's Day. Visit the brookery today. Welcome into the program. Episode 92, The Seventh Report. Your host, Harrison Hunter here. Excited to get going on this Monday. Hope you guys are having a good start to your Monday. Appreciate you guys tuning in. This interview is with Floyd Reese. He was the once GM of the uh, Tennessee Titans from 1994 to 2006. Currently the co-host of Jared and the GM on 1025 The Game in Nashville. Monday through Friday from 2 to 6 p.m. We're excited to get Floyd in here talking about all things Titans and some of the stories from when he was the general manager, and we are so excited to get some of these stories as someone who wanted to be a general manager of a team eventually. This is very exciting for me to get to talk to Floyd. Let's welcome him in. Floyd, thanks for being on the show. How are you feeling today? You know what? I'm doing okay. Um, kind of relaxing, watching a little Winter Olympics. You were the GM of the Titans from 1994 to 2006 and drafted some of the greatest Titans in franchise history. For my audience, here are some of those names. Eddie George, Steve McNair, Javon the Freak Curse, and Keith Bullock. Of those players mentioned, who stands out to you the most? Wow, that's a tough one. Uh, You know, it's probably... Um, Steve, we went out, we knew we needed a quarterback and we went out and, uh, and in our mind, he was the best quarterback out there. So, you know, that was a good choice. Um, Eddie's pick was in the, near the middle of the round. And the good part about that pick was we, we actually traded down, picked up more draft choices. And in addition in to, to getting Eddie, we drafted John Runyon, who ended up being a pro bowl right tackle. Um, so we got kind of a bonus there. Um, you know, Javon was a thrill because, you know, we didn't think we would have a chance getting in mm-hmm. at 16, hung around, we were able to get him. Uh, and Keith was, you know, probably the biggest surprise because at, <laughs> at 30, where we got him, it's hard to find a, an all-pro caliber player at 30. So which players stick out to you? Because those are some of the great picks you've had. Obviously, with great picks, there are some good misses or unfortunate misses. Do you have any that come off the top of your head as some of the biggest misses in your career? You know, I'm sure there there are quite a few. Um, <laughs> probably, uh, probably the worst was a uh, defensive tackle we took out of Alcorn State. Uh, I'm trying to remember his name now. I took him in the second round, and he just was a bust. Uh, and and what happened was I was the only person in the room that didn't like him. <laughs> and I, I was a young GM, and I had all these really experienced scouts around me and people that, that I had great confidence in. 
And so I kind of, at the end of the day, said, well, all these guys have to be smarter than I am, you know, so <laughs> let's go ahead and do it. Oh. And, uh, and it ended up being a mistake. You coached in the NFL for 15 years prior to taking the front office position. What sparked the switch? Because it's not oftentimes that during the pinnacle or apex years of coaching, you switch to the front office position. You know, I, um, I had coached a long time. My, my retirement was maxed out. Uh, you know, from that standpoint, I, I wasn't going to, you know, make any more money or set myself up for the future any better. Uh, and I, I wanted to be a head coach, but, you know, nobody's going to hire a short, fat, bald head coach. <laughs> and so I said, well, you know, maybe I can have a more dramatic effect on a franchise if I got into management. And um, and the next day, the owner came to me and asked me if I'd be interested, believe it or not. And so uh, I started my career that year. Once you resigned in 2006, did you have any other uh, NFL teams offer you once you did resign to come back in, in some sort of VP or special role with their organization? You know, I, I think I had probably a couple of chances. I, I didn't. Um, I mean, it was more important to me to get with the right organization. Mm -hmm. And I, I wasn't really crazy about any of the opportunities and they weren't general manager jobs, you know, so, uh, I was going to have to take a little bit of a step down mm -hmm. and to do that and go take a job that you aren't thrilled about. I thought, you know, I had better, better pass on those. Um, so I did that and worked at ESPN for a while before I got a chance to get to New England. What did you do for ESPN? I know that you wrote uh, a little bit, but getting to meet all those people, I'm sure you had some fun run-ins along the way. Yeah, I, I worked with a lot of good people. I did the NFL live show, and then uh, and then when you go there, what happened was I was still living in Nashville, uh, but I would fly up there, say, you know, Monday, and I would stay from Monday till Thursday, and then fly back. And uh, and when you're up there, they they like to put you what they through what they call the car wash. Mm -hmm. And what that is is that is you know you're going to do this show at this time, and and all day long you were doing bits and pieces of you know four or five shows. How exciting was that uh, coming off from the NFL? Now you're a media personality. Yeah, it was a little bit different. Uh, it, and and it was uh, unique because, as in any business, I think, you know, the, the biggest part of getting good at it is understanding what you have to get good at. And in TV, you have to get good at doing TV. You know, you have to get good at, at understanding where the cameras are. You have to get good at being able to talk when somebody's talking to you, you know, through the <laughs> earpiece, you have to be able to do a bunch of those kinds of things that were completely foreign to me uh, and took me a little bit of time to get used to. But, uh, but the veteran guys, the guys that knew what they were doing, I mean, they could jump on there and you could throw out a subject they knew absolutely nothing about and they would talk like they were geniuses. You know, they had been around it their entire lives. And, uh, and that, I think that's one of the real secrets to doing that kind of stuff. Who was the most famous person you worked with in ESPN at that time when you were on that show? 
You know what? I mean, I, I had a chance to work with just about everybody. I mean, Boomer was there, awesome. and Trey Wingo was there, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, that whole group, um, they, there were a number of, of ex-players that were there, Mark Slareth and, uh, and guys like that, uh, all really good guys, all, you know, good football guys. So for me, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. So from there, you already mentioned it. You went from ESP and took like two or three years off, and then the Patriots offered you a job. What stood out most to you in your four seasons with the New England Patriots? Well, I had known Bill. Bill and I started coaching together with the Detroit Lions in 1974 or 75. Mm. Uh, I was a strength coach, and he was a quality control coach. And so we had known each other for years and years and years. And and Bill and the New England way had become, you know, the front runner in the NFL. And and Bill is a very unique guy and has unique ways of doing things. Uh, but I wanted to to experience the 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 group setting that they have there. It, it truly is unique, and everybody that leaves there wants to do it like you, like New England does it. Well, <laughs> you know, unfortunately, there's only one Bill Belichick, and because of that, it's impossible to do it that way. But there are several just outstanding things they do there that uh, that I wanted to experience, and I always thought, you know, the combination of what they do there and some of the things about what we did, for example, at Tennessee that I really liked, I thought would would uh, you know at some point in time be a great uh, backbone for some franchise. What were some of those things that drew you and, and that you were hoping to get from New England? You know, things like this is the, the difference between New England and probably you know ninety nine percent of of the other sports franchises in the world is is you know if you go to any locker room in any team in any sport they will talk about things like camaraderie and and teamwork and you know sacrifice and and all of the things that you know that are important but nobody truly backs it up you know nobody will go to the nth degree because that is a belief uh, and at New England that's the way it is they you know they talk about teamwork and it doesn't matter who you are, if you're not going to be a part of the team and and fill your role as a part of the team, then you're not going to be there. And I think, you know, you can only look throughout the years at the number of people, good players, that have left there and gone other places and had good careers. But, you know, if they just didn't fit in the locker room and fit into the culture and, and those kinds of things, Bill was not going to keep it. It doesn't matter, you know, what your name was. I think we saw that most evidently and most recently with Malcolm Butler, although it's not really come out what all happened, but um, he's not afraid to sit players, especially even if they are the most seasoned, uh, most player on the defensive side of the football. It doesn't matter to him. Exactly. And, and I think you saw a great example of what, of what that culture is all about. You know, that culture is very... Uh, exclusive, very secretive, very, you know, among themselves, and they're just completely sold on on what they do, and it is the right way to do things. And 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 of course, you only have to look at their record to to understand that they're right. Um, but I think the you know the Malcolm Butler thing is a great example. You know, he doesn't want you talking about things that go on in the locker room outside of the locker room. And there's a great example. 
you know, he could have gotten up in front of the press and told the whole world what the reasoning, what the logic, what the, this is why we did it, this is why we didn't, but he refused to do that. And he just got up and, you know, said it was his decision and his decision alone, and that's the way, what they were going to live with. And it's interesting, I keep hearing all, all these multiple, multiple talking heads continue to say if he if Belichick just put his ego aside, they could have won the football game. And, and while they may be correct, isn't it interesting that he has something set, a culture set in place that they've won? I, I mean, I think it's eight years in a row they've had 12 wins, which is just absurd in the NFL. It's absurd. And yet people are saying that he couldn't get over his ego, but wouldn't you? Couldn't you flip it the other way and say, "Well, the reason they are that good for that long is the culture he's created, and because he's not willing to sacrifice." Exactly, and I think that's it. You know, even though people will look at this and say, "Geez, you know, that may have cost him the Super Bowl." Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. In my mind, that's not the argument. Mm-hmm. The argument is that that culture and him believing so strongly in that. And showing, in fact, the entire world what his beliefs are is the reason that he won the other six. Exactly. And so, you know, it's even though it's it's easy to look at, at immediate returns and and think, gee whiz, you might have you might have messed up a world championship there. If he hadn't have been that way, and the, if the culture hadn't have been that strong, he very likely wouldn't have won the other the other ones. Right. Were you surprised the Patriots didn't win a Super Bowl in your four years there? You know, I was. I mean, I thought uh, simply because we had really good teams. Uh, and, and you know, there were, you know, just so close. The helmet catch and, you know, the, <laughs> the Wes Welker dropping a ball. And, yeah. uh, you know, just just tiny plays along the way. But if you look at New England, you look at their history in the Super Bowl, they've won a lot of those games. Mm-hmm. Uh, just so happened that when I was there, we weren't lucky enough to to win one, even though we were lucky enough to get there. He's Floyd Reese, co-host of Jared and the GM, Monday to Friday from 2 to 6 p.m. on 102.5 The Game. Floyd, let's dive into some current NFL stories. Okay. Take the team out of it, the Colts, (laughs) because they're a division rivalry team, right? As a former GM, do you have a problem with what Josh McDaniels did? Well, I don't think anybody likes it, that's for sure. Uh, I, I don't think, I mean, I think it was a lose-lose. Um, you know, the the Colts lost and, um, you know, of course, Josh lost and the assistant coaches that were supposed to be hired under Josh lost. And, uh, and the truth is that, you know, had Indy not released the fact that he was, you know, all but signed as their head coach, none of this would have happened. And so, you know, you can look at it and you can think, you think to yourself, and I'm sure that at a point in time they thought, well, you know, if we go public with this, that'll kind of force him into taking the job. Yeah. Uh, you know, unfortunately he was wrong. They were wrong. <laughs> and, um, you know, Josh didn't help himself, didn't help his reputation. Um, and I, and I think, uh, you know, like I said, in, in a situation that easily could have been win-win, uh, it ends up being a, a loss for everyone and, and just a blemish on everyone. What is Mike Vrabel's greatest att- uh, attribute as a, as a coach? 
You know, uh, I, of course, we haven't seen him as a head coach. Don't know much about him. I, I had experiences. Uh, we were we were together a short time in uh, New England, and I, of course, his reputation. I mean, he's very, very highly thought of there. Um, but I think uh, he's a very, very bright guy. He really is a you know a football genius type guy. Uh, I think that, and I think his presence. He's one of those guys that. When he stands up in front of a room and he starts talking, it will get real quiet real quick. And uh, and he's just got that aura about himself. And in the NFL, when you're dealing with, you know, 53 millionaires that are, <laughs> you know, very high-strung, very competitive, very... You have to be able to command those guys. You know, they're they're not gonna. They don't have to follow anybody. You know, that's not their. They, that's not their mo. They're kind of, you know, the leaders. Well, for for a guy to get up and and lead a group of leaders, you've got to have a great presence about you. And I think Mike has that. That's very exciting for Titans fans everywhere. I, I mean, that's a great attribute to have, and and I think some that will give him success in the NFL. I, I think you're right. I mean, I think he's uh, he's going to be one of those guys that will demand uh, a certain level of play and level of work and and level of practice and all the things that go into it. I think he'll demand that, not just you know every once in a while, but on a daily basis. And I th- and pretty soon that becomes a way of life. You know, if you mm-hmm. do it enough, you you kind of fall into it, and that's what you end up being. And uh, and I think that he will, you know, he'll be able to bring some of that out in these guys. It's going to be really interesting with a young team like this. I'm from Atlanta, a huge Falcons fan. In 2016, Matt LaFleur was on the Falcons staff under offensive guru Kyle Shanahan. He then takes offensive coordinator job under a young, brilliant Sean McVay, knowing that Sean was still going to call the plays. How will those experiences help LaFleur bring out the best in Mariota this season? You know, I think probably just dealing with that group of quarterbacks because he's had a blend of dealing with a Matt Ryan, an experienced guy, not an old guy, but an experienced (laughs) guy, somebody that's been in the league, uh, you know, a fair amount of time and understands the league and all that and, and the way you have to deal with somebody like that and then turn around and go to golf who, you know, after his rookie year, there would have been a large number of people say he was going to be a bust Mm -hmm. and be able to get him to raise his level of competition as high as it did. So, uh, you know, he's been around some of the real top-notch guys, worked with them, um, and and I think he's going to be able to blend those kind of guys together and bring that all to Marcus. If you were the GM, what Titans player or players would you bring back uh, to re-sign before this offseason hits? You know, um, they're going to have money. Um, They're going to, I think they've developed a good core, a good group. Uh, I, I mean, I would look at, of course you want quality players, but I would continue to work on the, on the locker room. You know, I would continue to work on the, you know, the culture and the mm-hmm. things that they've gotten a great start with. 
I think they really do have a nice start. Uh, but but to get to the level that I think they're all going to want, they're, you know, they're going to have to continue work there. Um, you know, there's going to be uh, a number of those guys that like Taylor Lewan, who is, you know, they'll they're going to have to start working out a deal for him. Uh, I think in May they have to pick up the option for Marcus and then decide whether or not they're going to work out a deal for him. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think there's a, a pretty good core of guys they're going to fight really, really hard to keep around. And I also think because they've got money that they're going to go out and maybe for the first time in the, in the last two or three years be able to look for star players you know you don't for so long there they had to go for quantity because there were so many holes and they needed so much more talent and so you know quantity was almost more important than quality i think now they're going to be able to go to the other side of that and start looking for top-notch players what positions in your mind need to be filled uh, most urgently in free agency and in the draft and if they are different where would you fill them um, in free agency or the draft? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think if you, you look across the board, I think we need to continue to revamp the receiver group. I'm not sure what that means. I don't know what's going to be available in free agency and really haven't gotten into the draft yet. Uh, but I think that's an area that we need to work on. I think we need to work on the uh, the interior, the offensive line, especially the guard position. Uh, they're going to have to be some kind of interesting decisions made about the running backs and uh, DeMarco Murray's contract you know he's not up but I think uh, he's you know got a six million dollar cap number Mm -hmm. and you know what are you going to do there and then uh, you know is uh, you know are are all the running backs going to fit the mold that the new offense is going to uh, demand Um, on defense I mean we need a pass rusher uh, I think we need to add speed at the linebacker position. Um, maybe continue to build the corner position, and then I would look for another young safety. All right, let's get into the three random funny uh, questions that we've got set for this program. All right. You've lived in so many cities over the years. What comes to mind as your favorite? Oh, Nashville, without a doubt. We, um, you know, we've had a chance. We're, we're, my wife and I went to kindergarten together in a little bitty town in Northern <laughs> California, and uh, and so we've we've grown up in this little bitty town, and and we were always, you know, as we were married and having kids and whatnot, we always talked about well. When we retire, we'll go back to this little town and and you know finish there. Uh, and then, like you said, we started moving around, lived in a number of places, really, really enjoyed almost everywhere. Uh, but Nashville is undoubtedly our favorite. And uh, and even when we went up to New England, you know, we were up there for four years. I mean, we kept the houses here, and uh-huh. and when we finished there, we just moved right back in, opened the door, <laughs> and we were ready to go. <laughs> If you never worked in football, it's taken up so much of what you've done in in your life. What profession would you have would you have been in? Wow, you know, without football, I mean, I I haven't a clue. <laughs> <laughs> Strangely enough, I mean, the little town I grew up in, uh, you know, everybody that that graduated high school and. 
and didn't go on to college, worked in the steel mill or the paper mill. So I guess that probably would have been me, one or the other. Um, I, I don't know. That's an interesting question. Never thought about that. And and that just get, goes to show you how important football has been to to me and my life and my family's life uh, because it's it's meant so very very much. Now we've we've paid for it. You know, there's been a lot of heartache and tears and effort and whatnot. Right. But uh, I mean, I don't. We would have been lost without it. A lot of growing for sure. If someone was yeah. able to write a book about your story, if, if you let someone write a book, what would the title be? Wow, the title. Uh, you know, I guess it would have to do something with uh, the, the odd way that I got places, you know, got positions. Um, I, like I said, the little bitty town that I grew up in and I played football, and had a chance to go to to several schools. Well, you know, in that school, nobody had ever gotten a football scholarship before. And the school was founded in 1906. So, <laughs> you know, it goes to show you, I mean, the, the opportunity that I got from that, how lucky I was to get there. Then I go to UCLA, I end up going to UCLA. And, uh, and I was the worst freshman player in the entire football team. 55 players, I was the absolute worst one. And uh, and I go to our first day of spring practice. After the first day of spring practice, I'm the starting defensive tackle, and I kept that spot for three years, ended up an awesome. All-American. Now, that, that is odd. And then me getting into management. You know, after coaching, me sitting around with my wife saying, hey, you know, if I had any guts, I'd go in a different direction and the next day get offered a chance to get into management. So, you know, those are pretty uh, unusual ways of getting from A to B. How about this? The opportunistic Mr. Reese. <laughs> there you go. He's Floyd Reese, co-host of Jared and the GM, Monday to Friday, 2 to 6 p.m. on 102.5 The Game. Floyd, I've had a blast with you on here. Well, I'm glad. I, I enjoyed doing it. Thanks for listening to The 7th Report.